Hey, welcome to the first episode of Drawing South. I'm Mike Wendy, your host, and I'm so excited that Jody Hayes has decided to hang out with me for a little while. This pod- hey, thanks for being here. This podcast has absolutely zero pressure. There's no um, intended or specific outcome. Um, we are completely NATO the whole time. So whatever you want to chat about, if there's stuff you would like to talk about, um, we were just talking about uh, New American Paintings and... Um, so, yeah, let's just dive right in. Wendy was telling me, she was like, I told her, hey, I'm going to go out in the garage and I'm going to do my first episode with Jody." And she's like, oh, I love the new work she has up on Instagram. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, I probably should look at it because I'm going to interview her. But, um, and I've, tell her thank you. Yeah, and I've seen it um, and I feel like I've seen the, the work that you're doing, um, the kind of newer work that you've been making. The thing that I love the most is that... Um, is it cardboard that you're like doing, yeah. like doing the, like almost like a, a, a rubbing on and then, but then like you're using that. I love that kind of corrugated feeling. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, I mean, I've been working with like stripes and grids and like landscape base information for my instructions for a few years, but I'm dunking. I bumped up the collage aspect. I'm using a lot of like um, direct found fabrics, and then I'm dunking cardboard in a in a big bath of dye. <clears throat> so you get those um, you get the dye and ink that settles into those cardboard rivulets, those like parallel corrugations. Um, I've hired a couple of neighborhood kids to be my studio assistants. Um, when it's warmer because they've been once the cardboard's in a dye bath then you just peel it apart and I don't use the inner stuff but you meaning these two neighbor kids my son and some other kids um it's been so good and so weird to have um such a rich year in the studio which was 2020 for me and to simultaneously have been experiencing 2020 outside of the studio with everybody else. Like, um, yeah. So tell Wendy, thank you. And you can tell her, thank you for making my car rides with my children much better. Cause I go to the library and then I swing by your little library by your house Oh, cool! <laughs> and pick up books and then I exchange them next time I'm there. So, she takes that as seriously as anybody else else takes their studio practice. It's amazing. It is a studio practice. It's so like I'll go to like a a, lo- a playground with my kids or something, um, especially when it was bleaker. I mean, it's bleak now, but when we were getting used to it being bleak, so we would go up to like Two Rivers Playground. Is this too lo- hyper local for this conversation? No. <laughs> Two Rivers, it's playground. Um, I would just pile them all up in the car so we could have some space and um, drop by the library for my books, go by Wendy's, get some books for them, and then they would be quiet in the car like until we got there. I would tr- I'll would. i try to put books in, and she'll be like, no, those don't. Those need to go to Goodwill. And I'm like, but they're... And she's like, listen, honey, like, it's... And, I'm, and I get it. It's like... <laughs> It's her gallery, right? It's her space where she wants people to, and she'll get books out, and and she never throws books away, but it's just one of those things where it's like, 
you know, um, I think sometimes people will put stuff in like me who would just put something, uh, a, a type of book in there. And she's like, no, that's not, no one's going to read those. Like no, no one's going to get those. They're not going to be used. They need to be, those need to be taken to goodwill so someone can make collage out of them. Like that's, that's not why someone's coming to the, you know, that's a whole different kind of library. So, yeah. um, yeah. one thing I like thinking about books is like how much the, I feel like you discovered that poet this year, um, from Arkansas and how much that like, like it's clear how much it like rattled your cage in like a good way. Um, yeah. and so yeah. talk like, how did you find her? Like, and she's from Arkansas, right? Like she's, she's from Arkansas. I mean, there, there are a couple of things to say about CD, right? Um, she, how did I not find her is another way mm-hmm. to think about it because I'm, I'm 44. She died suddenly in 2016. Um, she'd gone on this long plane trip to go visit or just to go with her husband, but she was really into beech trees. She's studying trees and has a lot to say about ecopoetics. And, um, she got, is it deep vein thrombosis? And died. So very suddenly, she was like six, 62 or something. Um, but she was a MacArthur genius. She was poet in residence at um, Brown for years, like 20 years. She um, was the Rhode Island Poet Laureate. I, and all that to say, like, I lived in Lowell, Massachusetts, and Boston, and Cambridge, Massachusetts for like eight years. Never heard of her. And I used to keep a list of notable Arkansans because the state is so, has such a small population. And because of that, and very rural and very, you know, like um, country and, you know, it's not a cosmopolitan state. Now that can be argued that there are parts to it, of course, that are. But I picked up her book, Cooling Time. I was doing my year-end audit. I always do like a business year-end audit. the first week of the year and um i think i bought cooling time in february of of last year and when i read cd Wright's poetry i feel like um i'm 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 reading someone who she would say trues me who like understands the ground and the vernacular that I come from like because she comes from that too in fact we're probably related my mom's maiden name is right she's right um I just get her so I, I think I get her so much probably because there's been such a lack of that for me you know I mean I love artists but it's it's I've never had one that's so that's so not just intellectually connected with me mm-hmm. um and that, I mean, it maybe people from New York City might just feel that way all the time because New York's giant and there are amazing people who come out of there all the time, but I just don't. I've never had that. So I started reading her book and, and I was like, I had moments like back in May, June, where I just like cried that I didn't meet her. <laughs> so it, I, I love that you use the term rattled my cage in the best way because it just has. And I can't explain it. I, and when I try and explain it, I get real, like, um, off the charts. Like, I think I'm channeling her. 
Um, I, like I get, I get weird because I, I am so grateful for having her voice. It, it's like a mentor from the other side of this whole thing. Um, I get it. Okay. So that's, that's the more like weird spiritual, um, kind of paranormal <laughs> answer to that. Um, the artistic answer is, um, she has given her work has given me language to hang my visuals on. I was already making that. I was already making that. And she became like my, she became the the only voice in my studio that I didn't want to kick out. Um, and, and that's because of the way she uses language, but not just that. She talks about, like, um, she just, I, she gets me. She gets uh, being an Arkansan and what that means in these, like, very elite circles and poetry art. Um, yeah, and <clears throat> land has always been really important to me, and she, she talks a lot about that. I mean, you can't grow up in Arkansas in the 70s without land being whether you like it or not. It's like the thing that makes you. <laughs> um, so yeah, all that. Her, her, um, her work on YouTube, listening to her talk about everything, but mostly read her, her poems. Um, and I, I, I do have a deep, a real deep sadness that I didn't meet her. So um, there would have been several times I could have. I... So I have those sadnesses too, like with some specific people, and I'm curious because who are your people? Um, I'll, let me circle back to it so I don't forget this thing. I'm wondering if that loss is what makes them so powerful to us. You know what I mean? Like I'm wondering if we would have met, if you would have met her, would you? Would that work have done what it's right. done for you? Does that make sense? Like because you've arrived at it. I'm just, it's one of those things that's, it's always a curious thing for me because there are people who I've met who I don't know that I've dived into their work in the same way of the people that I didn't meet. Um, and, uh, for me, like one of the things is as someone who's interested in music specifically and who's gotten interested in music, like, like country music, like after the fact, like growing up and like really resenting it and not really wanting to be from Nashville because, I grew up in the late 1970s, early 1980s in Nashville when that was the only thing people ever said about your city. And so you went to church camp and people were like, oh, I bet you love country music. And I'm like, I don't at all. And of course, now I love it. But Bill Monroe played every Tuesday night for free in Hendersonville, Um, you know, just at a a little bar that you could have just gone to, like the father of bluegrass, Um, you know, just you could have just gone and... You know, Towns Van Zant lived in Nashville when I lived in Nashville. Um, you know, I could have yeah. I could have seen. There's a show that happened at the Bluebird that would have cost possibly nothing. It could have been a free show, but it maybe was five dollars, and it was um, it was Guy Clark, Towns Van Zant, and Steve Earle. And it's like the fact that I didn't go to that show when I was I was a teenager. Wendy had a car. We were driving around and going to places like we could have gone to that. Um, and, and matter of fact, went to the Bluebird with Wendy at one point to see my friend Nate's brothers. There was a band at one point, uh, some kids from Hume Fog had a, um, had kind of like an Irish folk slash rock band. 
um, called Bards of a Feather, and we saw them at the Bluebird. So the only thing I saw at the Bluebird was it was an Irish like group of kids <laughs> doing what, Irish what folk music. They're all doing cool stuff, I'm sure. Um, I bet, I bet. Um, yeah, but uh, but anyway, so just those um, those moments of of loss. I'm wondering if those things. I don't know. I've, I've always been curious if those kind of do something to do something to your brain where you're like, I'm going to make up for it. Right. Like I'm going to yeah, make up, I'm going to yeah. make up for it in a way to where like, I'm going to like, I wrote a song about Bill Monroe. Like, like I wrote a song about missing that. And I, I yeah, it, I don't know if it's just the loss for me. Cause I was like for a good month in the beginning of quarantine, like so tracking her, um, knowing she had died like but I think for me it's that her voice is so um I don't want to like overstate what the work that I make but her voice feels like it's like a family harmony Mm -hmm. like it is so matched in a way that like if you're not the same DNA it doesn't you know and I mean again we probably are related but do you think it lost for sure is something but I think it's more about damn, I need, I needed this boy. I needed, I needed for something or someone, and maybe she had to be dead to do this to like, but if she were alive, I would be tracking her down, which is also problematic. Yeah. Did she key up the Arkansas in you? Did she make you braver to, to let that stuff, some of those things out that you were holding back? Or is it just about the fact that you have been making work like that your whole career? And it's just, like you said, there's finally this language to kind of to hang on it. Yeah, no, I think, so I found her work, actually, like, for the summer of 2015, my family and I lived in Boston, we went back to Boston, we were there before we had kids, and we decided to take the kids and stay in the summer, and we were staying at my cousin's house, who's more like my uncle, and he's a contemporary of C.D. Wright, and also a writer, he's, um, the, yeah, so, he is, he was overseas, so we were left with his library, which is like amazing, extensive world traveler library. But he had a book. Um, I think he had a book of her days. Um, C.D. Wright. Uh, I think it was uh, the memoir or the biography of her mentor, Miss Vidito or something, who's a civil rights um, white woman and kind of an outsider in civil rights, um, social justice person in the '60s in Arkansas and also her mentor. So she wrote a book about this, and I I read it that summer when I was in Boston. I mean, I had three kids under the age of five at that point, Um, and it it was amazing. I loved it. So I had been introduced to her, but like it it wasn't, the the, um, prose wasn't the same at that point as the poetry book, I guess. But, you know, I wrote it down. I was like, you know, I need to do that. I asked my uncle, I was like, did you ever meet her? so she was rattling around in there and um, maybe, I mean, in hindsight, I had a show in January, so I was making the work for it. I didn't know I was making work for a show, but in November of 2019, so when the show opened in January 2020, it was um, Small Works, like, you went to it, didn't you? I mean, not to put you on the spot, but... Where was it? It was a browsing room. Um, I didn't. I mean, not many people saw it because it, um, it's, it's a wonderfully hard space to get into. <laughs> but, 
for the work that I showed. So the work was like paintings that were very expanded field paintings, like rolled up wallpaper that I found in my grandmother's drawer or um, thrifted and stretched napkins, like country looking napkins around the stretcher. So, and um, Emily Weiner, a painter here in town, wrote a review of it and just nailed it. Um, and she really like picked up on all the meemaw part of it, which, um, yeah, I guess like that show was, you know, my work's not about like country bumpkins, but that show was a uh, Jana Harper, uh, painter here in town, or artist here in town, called it permissive. She's like, you, it, it feels like you are making work that you're giving yourself permission to make the work that you need to make. So I think in, in some levels, I've always done that. Um, but that, I don't know, but maybe it's like coming of age, middle age, maybe she don't care anymore. Maybe it's like being mid-career, but um, that show gave me a lot of um, a lot of fuel to think about. I mean, I was stretching like rubber beach balls that I found in my yard that were like a few years old, and just a more expansive definition of what I wanted to do. Um, so I think it was all of those things. Um, and then I found cooling time where, and it's like a, it's like a, a book about what it is to be a maker. Um, I think it's all that, but I, I mean, I have those same, um, like there was a touring, Lucinda Williams was touring with her dad, who's now passed away, he was a poet, he was the head of the writing department, I think, at U of A, University of Arkansas for a long time, and she played with him, and he, uh, he read his poems, and that's one of those things that I'm like, I mean, I knew it was happening. I told my friends in Chicago to go to it. I probably, I could have driven up to Uva to go. I, I could have figured it out. Um, but that's one of the things. I think that's more similar with like, oh, that, it's okay, but that's really beautiful. Should have been there. You could have been there. Right. I, before I forget, I, I love this idea of, and, and I'm, I know I'm not the only person that's had it, but like in thinking about you specifically, isn't that funny how, like the expanded field is connected to like agricultural fields and like the Southern vernacular. So like my grandmother does things with the way she lays stuff out for prepping things, the way just the way their property looks, the way that like my dad, who's a product of that, like the way he'll put stuff and lean things onto the side of the house, like he'll lean them up because it'll remind him of his youth. And they look just like a piece of you know like like art from the 1960s you know like like kind of conceptual work that Bruce Nauman was making and it's just so interesting that idea of and I think for me a lot of that has to do with like getting rid of the pretension right like you know you didn't you didn't my grandparents didn't worry about what anything except the front of their house looked like you know but like whatever was around back or to the side, like it, but the front of the house, like there was, you know, like there, like the front of the house was like kept up and the yard was mowed and the flowers were pretty, but like 30 feet to the left, there could be, you know, a tractor disassembled 
and wash tubs hanging on the, I mean, my grandparents still have the barn that was moved up from the flooding of Del Hollow Lake. They moved it. They, they, they moved the barn when all that, when the TVA, um, flooded all of those flooded that community, they gave people like they, you know, they paid everyone off and just said, you know, this is when the flooding will start. And then everybody just bartered and worked with everyone. And so people moved barns like all the way up the hill because there was just like the lumber was already cut. And so it was like, you know, we think about the kind of invention of like Sears homes and like modular things. And it's like, man, poor folks invented that like long before anyone, like long before a designer figured it out. Like they moved a barn and packed it up with mules and took it all the way up the hill and reassembled a barn, which to me seems like it was born on their property. And it turns out it was moved, you know, five miles and, you know, a couple hundred feet in elevation, maybe 500 feet in elevation. So, but I just think that it's really interesting when you go to their barn and look at things, I'll look at stuff and just be like, man, that looks just like, you know, and just pick any, any artist. Well, it is that. I mean, Jessica Stockholder was like living with her parents after grad school when she made her first like spray painted that mattress, you know, leaning up against the shed. I do think there's something about like when you or when I like there is a, a move towards um, maybe not conscious but a more move move to home like artwork that feels like home or something um, and maybe not literally like a shovel leaned up against a shed but um, for for who I am that that is similar, like, I've lived in cities my adult life, but for sure, that um, connection to just, like, old shabby stuff, or, um, yeah, I think, I think it's what took me a while to, like, figure out my place in the art world, because I was suspect of being fancy, (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. I was taught to be suspect of being too fancy, and, and, I mean, being smart isn't being fancy, but that it, it was in this, Town, you know, this town that I grew up in. So um, I think it's all that. Um, My it's fr- funny that you talk about your grandparents in their house, like the front and the side, because I think a lot. I'm not a seamstress, but I do have to sew for some of my work, and and I'm so crappy. But someone told me when I was learning bookbinding that the inside of your book, like when you're making a paste paper to go as an end paper, or your um, making a cover for your book and like um, binding over like the book board or chipboard that it needs to look as good I mean this is a sewing term on the inside and stuff on the outside and I've been turning these new pieces around to see the front and the back Um, and I'm not saying they look like I'm just interested but I think it might come from that Hmm. like letting it like your grandparents just like hey we know how to do this yard thing just in case you don't know it right yeah but we also don't care if you're looking around the sides because just know that we know we know the game and we're playing it in the front well it's funny because i had one 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 i had a grandfather who was both of my grandfathers were the weather in their family right like they were the weather and the and you know and in my family like my dad is the weather and my mom's the meteorologist right like she was always telling us like what was coming you know and so 
and she could see it and read it and she could let us know. And that was her role with us. And so we knew if we needed an umbrella or not. And that's what my grandparents were like too. Hold on. Are you saying like metaphorically, your mom was the one who was like, Hey, you need to be prepared for this. Mm -hmm. Okay. She was a meteorologist, right? Like she was telling us like, there's a cold front coming in. And she literally was a meteorologist. No, no, no. I'm just saying, like that's what that's what her job was in our in our family. Like that's one but of the. But the cold front wasn't your dad. You're not metaphorically saying no, no, that no. your mom was like, "Hey, be prepared, kids. It's gonna be a rough one." Yeah. Dad's mad. Yeah, yeah. That's that's okay, what I'm that saying. Too. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's 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 what I mean by that is that she was the my dad was the weather, and yes. you know. Okay, that's brilliant. And so, and I, somebody, uh, you know, who said that was, um, Colton, um, Whitehead. He was talking about his, uh, his family. That's where I found that. And I was uh, like, oh my goodness. Like I need that term like really badly. Um, yeah. and so, uh, but, um, but anyway, my grandparents were like that. And my grandfather on my mom's side in a, in, was, was very much that way. Um, to my grandmother's frustration a lot about like just how the yard looked. But for me as an artist, like he made this big two story house and I think he thought he was building like a mansion and he painted it like kind of the red and it looked exactly like a monopoly hotel, except writ large. It literally was the same shape and it was just <laughs> it was two stories and it was this big and it was just a barn. Like, there's no way to say there's a barn, but it looked just like the Monopoly Hotel. It was the exact same shape. And he was, like, he was, it was just crazy, the 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 stuff that he would build. He never used a, a ruler. He would just start making things, and he would build us anything that we wanted to. And he was just, and so when I see your paintings, those corrugated, that corrugated feel, like, it always reminds me of him because... He made us a, when I was skateboarding, he had no clue what, what skateboarding was other than he was fascinated with it and thought it was great for us. And so he just hooked a bunch of corrugated sheets of roofing together and like nailed them overlapping so that we could ride this rusty razor blade like <laughs> down these. He's like, I'll make you boys a, I'll make you boys a, a, a skateboard, you know, ramp. And, and it was and he just got there and, you know, and, uh, he was, he was a, he was a, he was such a character and the, the way he thought about like kind of just doing stuff and not worrying about whether what to call it was, was like when I got into art school, I was like, Oh, that's like, yeah. you know, like that's the way to do it is just start doing stuff. Like, don't worry about yeah. if you know how to build a skateboard ramp or not, just go build one for your grandkids or, um, oh, one time we were, we were hosing the yard. We, we had the hose in the yard and we were making like a mud pit and, and we didn't know, and we had no idea how Colleen had figured out what was still sacred or not, because the whole place just seemed like a playground to us. He let us do whatever we wanted. And so we were out just like with a hose and she got so frustrated because we were making mud. And I was like, I don't understand where the rules and lines are because the back of their house looked like a very country like almost stereotypical, like just out back and it's just dirt. And so, um, grandpa, and she didn't get frustrated with this very often at all. And so grandpa, like, he was like, Hey boys, come here. And we thought we were in big trouble. And he took us out to the barn, Jody, and he built us a like three foot by three foot box with legs on it and then cut a hole 
and then put a bucket inside of it and then walked it right back to the same spot we were. And he's like, y'all boys put some dirt in that bucket and then you, that's your mud and it'll keep it out of, it'll keep it out of Colleen's garden. That's what she was mad about. She wasn't mad about y'all playing. She don't care if you get dirty. And then we just played and that thing stayed there all summer. And I know for a fact that she had to have been like, that is not what I meant. Now I've got this right. ridiculous <laughs> tape. <laughs> Right. For little, little guys. Yeah. So, what did your, um, did you grow up close to them then? Like, Birchtown is about two hours right on the Tennessee Kentucky border from here. So, oh, okay. like, go to Cookville, hang a left, um, Dale Hollow Lake area. Um, yeah. So, my, okay. my mom and dad both grew up up there. Um, and so I lived up there when I was from like four to eight. So, we lived on a big farm, um, like 200 acres, like way out in the middle of nowhere. It took two hours to ride the bus to school and back to school as a five-year-old. Um, had two wow. brothers on the bus. It was, it was very rural. We didn't have, we had a phone line, but we didn't have, like there was no TV reception and you could get a radio reception. And so we didn't watch TV. We just played. We had a pond and yeah. there were barns yeah. and, you know, there were, horses and snakes and crawfish in the creek and I mean it was just it was if I could go back to childhood I would go back to that moment you know those moments mm. even though we were wicked poor right like yeah. like my mom borrowed money from me one time to buy milk and I remember thinking like that's not that's not how this yeah. is supposed to happen right like like she, yeah. didn't, like she didn't have her own money like like Right. Like I have like four dollars, <laughs> right? Like uh, that's enough. That'll do. Yeah, it would. So it, what, did, what did your grandfather? Um, was he a farmer by trade? Mm -hmm. Did he farm? Mm -hmm. uh, my grandfather on my mom's side, the kind of real character. Both of them were characters in a lot of ways. Um, my other grandfather was an auctioneer, um, and he was a very kind of like animal auctions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 There's a, like the sale bar. Yeah, with the like tiered, like at yeah. the with the. I used to go to one of those like every week with my papa. He would wear he would wear like a like a really nice suit with a bolo tie, and like uh -huh. it was real. His image was really important to him to like, you know he had. There's just there's. He was in the Negro Three. There's still just like yeah, <laughs> me and him both yeah. Um, <laughs> me too. And uh, so he um, yeah, and then. So he was a he farmed he had cattle, um, okay. and then kept they kept gardens and for him it was mostly you know like cattle and hay and then my grandfather on my mom's side um, for years he did a billion different things he worked for the ball jar company at one point and then he worked as a he ran like a little gas station huh. at some point but he would run like a fruit stand from a, lo a lot of our time when we were kids but he he grew tomatoes and would had a tomato route that he would sell tomatoes. So I always tell people that uh, things are so different now. Cause we think about like eating local and, and how corporations just don't do that. But there was a time, there was years in the 1980s that if you bought a Whopper from the Burger King in Jamestown, Tennessee, that you were eating a tomato that was grown within 20 minutes of where that Whopper was made. Cause my grandfather would go through and he would sell tomatoes to all those Wow. To all those um, 
fast food places because he would sell it to uh-huh. him cheaper than than like a big farm would. And so his route would be he'd go yeah. from Birdstown two hours to Crossville, Tennessee to the farmer's market. And he would just sell all the way out there and then sell all the way back. He'd just fill a, we'd fill a big box truck full of tomatoes. I hated tomatoes as a kid because I had to pick them. And um, I grew yeah. up, I grew up not, um, we grew up in a, in a church called Worldwide Church of God and we kept the Jewish Sabbath. So we couldn't watch TV or do anything on from Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown. And so on Sundays we would go to my grandparents and instead of watching Sunday morning cartoons, we would have to get up and pick tomatoes. <laughs> and so, uh, as a kid, I remember just being like, "Ugh!" like I finally get yeah. to watch one. We're at a place that has TV and then yeah. two, two were out like in the heat, you know, and you literally could look up and you would just see a row of tomatoes and you could not see the end of it. Um, and you were, you know, eight and you're just like, don't want to do that. Um, I think the thing that that, was helpful for me for is like remembering like that's like right now that's what people are doing it's what migrant workers have to do all the time in florida right like yeah. i mean it's one of yeah. those things that so it was um certainly helpful in that understanding of like you know just that kind of constant gratefulness for not having to work like that um when other people you know kind of do um when you're I was, I was thinking about the, this idea of like kind of the paintings that you've made now, they seem like they've opened up so much more like visual vocabulary, right? With like bringing materials in and this, the, the, like you're inventing like kind of new processes with this like dying of the cardboard and like, or do you already know what you're, when you're in your studio, are you, are you a planner or are you just always intuitive or are you a mixture of like, do you, do you create side work? Like, Oh, I'll keep that. I'll keep that little idea for if I'm ever bored and I can explore it later. But right now I'm going to continue to do this because it seems like you're in doing a lot of inventing right now, um, as you're making. Yeah. Um, so I, I started using found fabrics. Like I was kind of like dipping my toe in, I mean, I was literally making paintings of quilts when I graduated undergrad. Like, I was sitting them up, setting them up in my, like, dining room in Cambridge, making these quilts that were landscapes. I mean, they're, like, super cliche, but um, I found a couple of old pictures the other day. Um, so, I think the textiles have always kind of been there. Um but I started sewing, like kind of piecing canvases together really subtly, probably like in like 2016, maybe 15, 16, 17, but bumped it up like in 18, definitely in 19. And fall of 2019, I just spent a lot of time researching and um, reading a lot, rereading Planer O'Connor, reading like different different voices on Flannery O'Connor, Hilton Alls, um, this, uh, critic, the critic for New Yorker and like he writes for art form and stuff. Um, but, but other voices on this, like kind of tried and true Southern-ish narrative and all the like problems with that, especially with women, feminist voices, queer voices, black voices, um, and trying to situate my work 
like trying to find uh, a way a way to talk about my work that that felt authentic to me because some of the like tried and true old school narratives on painting just weren't I know them I love a lot of them but they weren't working for me in particular in my studio practice so I made these little like notebooks I called them painter notebooks but um I spent time like just gathering all these pictures that I take and kind of these inputs for my work and um making those so and reading a ton so I was reading like Eileen Miles and um, there was a really good one actually that this is way after but the national scene during the pandemic I think it was which, which we're still in I know but um, I think it was like May or June um, Kisei Lehman is that his name? He wrote Heavy I'll have to like look at it anyway he had a conversation and the, the, um, the printed title was How Racist Was Pleasure and Honor so it was like reading a lot of that kind of stuff um, Hilton Laws wrote a famous or a piece famous to me in the New Yorker about Flanger Connor and her like racism basically. Um, but they, she talks about he talks about Win Dixies and my grandfather was a grocer. So I was really like digging into this um, the visual habits of that that I go to. Um, so when quarantine hit, I was like ready to roll. Like I lost no time. I'm also not in my 20s or 30s. Like I right. know how to like get shit done and use my time well. So, I mean, it was not. Never have I had a boring moment. I think you add the um, you add the intensity of having three children in the middle of this crisis and kind of pulling like figuring out the emotional labor you need to do on their behalf. Like the studio in my backyard really became like um, a solace. So, Jody, real quick, just... real quick there. I'm I'm curious that. So we talked about how loss creates a certain thing. It's interesting. Do you think you would have ever been efficient, as efficient as you are, without the gain what you gained from your kids? You know, like I think about that all the time. It's like if I didn't have if Joey wasn't around, like if I didn't have the responsibility and like the joy and like honor of like getting to be his dad, like would I be as efficient with my time? And that's all through like the gaining of something yeah. as opposed to the loss of something and it's really interesting that that like yeah. your your ability to like like you know how to have a studio practice like like you you like are so efficient and aware of time you have th like you have all the excuses in the world to not have a studio practice but like you okay. still have a really like lively one and one that's really rich and is it because like you, when you walk into the studio door, like you're not losing a second. Um, I, I mean, I know how to get stuff done. I think I'm really stubborn. I think that helps right. to just hold on, hold on to it like a dog likes to gnaw a bone. That's what Robert Henry says about painting. Like you have to love it that much. Um, and I am really stubborn. But I think what kids have done for for me and perhaps this would have happened anyway, getting older in a practice, is um, allowing, because painting and, and being in the studio is so immersive. I, also, I don't listen to stuff in the studio unless it's NPR, the radio, like, so I'm not really distracted. Um, I don't listen to music anymore in the studio. <laughs> like, I'm not distracted by, like, piles and playlists and, um, <laughs> or lyrics, really. Right. It is 
talking about creativity on this right. podcast, I'll listen to it. But um, I think part of it is the necessity to be present and immersed with children. Not that I like do that well all the time. The slowness of the pace, especially with younger kids, mine are like five to ten now, five, eight, ten. Um, you know, just I think that kind of practice of like, this is what I'm doing right now. I'm on my knees and I'm picking up Legos. Right. <laughs> this is what I'm doing. Definitely makes me appreciate the studio where I'm the author of it. And if I want crap on the floor, it's my crap, not right. anybody else's. So I don't know. I think I think it, it has taught me to, or I have picked up on like really um, appreciating the periphery. So some artists see that through like, oh, my kid did a drawing and look what they did there. Um, it's kind of what walking has done for me too, where you walk and you like, you can't di- dictate and control what you find on a walk. It just right. kind of happens. Um, so kids have, have shown up not narratively for me in my work, but more obliquely in that way, like the, the habit of being like immersed in right. what I'm doing. And yeah, I mean, you do have to be a good time manager, but I was I was good at that before I had kids. I think kids have made me um, have, like, have to have more grace with myself and depend on other people's grace. Because <laughs> sometimes I just can't show up for people, and I, I don't like that. And so, you know, I just don't have the hours, or, and sometimes I am not as together as I would like to be. <laughs> Like, and maybe it's because I didn't sleep at all last night because my kids peaked sometimes or whatever. Like, it's made me hopefully be more gracious with other people who might be having that moment. I mean, I know when I had my first and I was teaching at TSU, it definitely changed the way I anticipated conversations with my students. I was just like, yeah, this is different. I, I see things more empathically. Not that I can't still be a like royal jackass, but I think I'm more aware of it when I <laughs> right more aware of it and like not surprised but more sad by it. I guess I feel like as a, when I used to hear people say like you're you need to figure out like how to come up with like a balance in your life. I was I was always curious about like. versus like sad and what I've realized for me the balance is like all about grace it's like figuring out how to have enough grace for yourself and how to have enough grace for each uh, others and like and figuring out the balance and that it's okay sometimes to not have grace for yourself or for others but it's never okay to never have grace for yourself and never have grace for others and figuring out that balance and and that that becomes the like those things then that's the larger thing that everything else is an umbrella for me for is like the grace is is has become that thing for me that i've like realized is like that's the that's the key to everything is like figuring out how to have grace for yourself and others right like just and then inside of your own work is like you know hey how can i be really that tough on myself when i'm working 55 hours a week um you know skateboarding with joey trying to be some kind of husband to wendy and then having 30 minutes here and there in the studio and then it doesn't work that well sometimes you know and then kind of being tough and going like well you know you maybe would have arrived at something if you would have had eight hours today 
to get to something. And so maybe it's okay that maybe, you can't yeah, get to that. Maybe not. Right. Like maybe you don't need those eight hours. I've right. had this conversation with Karen, a friend of mine, Karen Seeker, and um, a few others. We had that conversation once. Like, what if, um, what if, like, we're just more efficient? And Mark Scala was at the table. It's when I did that thing called Pie Club. He's mm-hmm. the only dude I've ever invited to Pie Club. I don't do Pie Club anymore, but you're totally invited. I um, but he was like, well, maybe you would have arrived at being efficient in the studio anyway. Maybe it's not kids. And I've gone back and forth, like, what's the what's a feminist answer to that? Um, I don't I don't know. I think it's all, I think the key is, like, it's everything, all the answers. <laughs> it has right. to be, like, um, maybe just... yeah, I, I don't need eight hours in the studio. I didn't need eight hours needed an immersive process but right um it's never worked for me to like lounge in the studio except for this year i have a studio i have a couch that i moved from my former office and you know maybe there is something to that but um i guess what i was thinking about is like that that idea of if you'd have just had the amount of time that you needed to have to do it you know like you're you're working on something and you're like you're almost there it ends up not turning out right, well, no one's going to ever know. No one's going to give you that grace of you being like, yeah, but three kids were suddenly going, mom, mom, hey, mom, and you needed 30 more minutes or 30 more seconds. But I think yeah. that's the thing that that I have to remember is that when I'm making work under and only having those little spots, it's like, you know, you're going to, you're going to, you're going um, to miss sometimes. And I was talking to, I got real interested in sports and as them being connected to art in grad school, um, and I still am and have always been because I grew up playing sports and skateboarding. I grew up being really physically active and then um, and was good at basketball and played in college and um, and and then just kind of coming to art school and not meeting as many people who were as good at basketball and were really that interested in sports. And so I got real interested in it. In, in those connections. And so I was talking to Beth Edwards one time about that, you know, painting or sculpture, like I feel like a good, you know, if you make three out of 10 really good pieces, you know, you might be in the hall of fame if you were a baseball player, you know, and that, and, and that idea. And she was like, and Beth is a super serious, super cool lady, really great painter. Um, at University of Memphis and she was like yeah. that's she goes that's that's really good actually she's like hold on to that like three out of ten is really like that's something to strive for it's doable you're not going to get it every time you know but like you know this idea of everything always being good and so that that was something that was really an interesting thing it was like the first time that because she was I always picked Beth for my independent studies because she was just a hard ass about stuff like in the best way like just really would like kind of keep you accountable and um, would do like 30 seconds of small talk and then would just immediately be like, okay, let's look at the paintings. Like, what are we looking at here? And I was a sculpture major, but I took painting independent studies with her. And so, which she loved because she was like, she and I could have a different kind of relationship because she didn't see me all the time. I wasn't in her department. I wasn't around. We didn't, I was, she was much more like an aunt and I was a, a nephew because like I could just ignore her and, good-naturedly do it and she would like let it go and instead of it was just an interesting dynamic that I really liked but 
Um, I would talk to her about sports and she'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. But that one, she finally glommed onto and was like, that's really good. She's like, yeah, the batting average, right? This idea of which allow, like, which is a whole weird roundabout macho way of talking about grace, right? Like not doing 10 out of 10 things, like three out of 10 can be okay. And you can feel really good Uh about it. You know, this idea of like that the attempts are as powerful as the misses, right? Like, you know, um, which was. Um, and it's about the practice of it. Right, yeah, I mean... It's, a, it's, about, it's about the thing that you did 10 times, not once. I was... Um, Hamlet invited me down to talk to his kids, his students, a while back um, when you could go talk to people. Um, and uh, And I remember I was getting ready to... Oh, it's because you... So he heard the talk that I gave at at CCAC that you had invited me to. And then he, oh, he invited me to kind of give that same talk. But I remember telling that group of students that I was in my backyard. I was tired from a day's work, but I had, I went and I had these bottles in my hand that I'd spray painted and all this stuff. And I was walking them kind of up the little hill in my yard to my studio to start working on them. And I had like 20 minutes. And I remember just being like, I'm so grateful to have, to know how to have an artistic practice. And like nobody else would have recognized that as what I was up to as an artistic practice, but it was like, it was mine. It's very specific. It won't matter if no one ever hears about it, but it's like a thing that I like know how to do, you know? And it's like, it's really interesting to me that I've figured out those tools. Some very, um, that made a lot of sense. Like Beth, that was very practical that she could give to us. And other ones just very like, you know, abstract expressionist that, you know, the thing that pisses everybody off when they said, you know, it's like painting with your hands in a mattress. And I remember Bill Anthus saying like, that doesn't teach any young painters how to make a painting. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I would echo that for sure that I have never been as grateful as I was in 2020 to have a studio practice. Oh man. Um, I mean, I think it, when in 2016, when Trump was first elected, it was like, for me and maybe some others too, there was a lot of question of like, okay, do we, when do we weigh in on some of this? Do we weigh in on it with our work? If it's, how's it affected? Um, and this last year, I was just like grateful to, to have a way to process, to have a way to use my imagination out of something. Right. It was that simple. Um, and you know, and like not, not that it was comfortable, but it it's work and it's good work. But I think it's, there's there's that idea too, right? Of like, you know, every radio station on the dial isn't NPR, and every radio station on the dial isn't like the Howard Stern show. But it is a dial. It is like uh-huh. a, it is a spectrum, and like not all of us are equipped to make work about Trump, right? Like because it just becomes part of the noise. Like it takes a really subtle, incredible, like level of like exactitude to like make work about that, that will rise above the noise and actually send a signal. Right. Because if I start making work about Trump, I'm just part of the noise. I'm just, and, and and so it's also just like weird messaging. Sure. You end up doing what, yeah, you end up doing what? It's messaging. It's not art. Yeah. 
and I'm grateful f- because if I did it, like not for not sure. for all the nuanced artists that, yeah. do, that do make work that, uh, about that with materials and language and <clears throat> yeah I mean I think I was always a suspect of any kind of it's probably because I grew up evangelical in it, evangelical circles and when I went to art school definitely had some like heavy handed advice you know like that you have this like evangelical imperative to go into the world and tell people about this thing, and I've just always been a little suspect of that. Right. Like, um, oh, so you're just... you're you're like your idea is like I don't want to proselytize in any way, like whether it's about the expanded field and its connection to Southern vernacular or anti-Trump. <laughs> right. I'm not gonna. Do, yeah, it's, it's I have to watch that because I really. I think it gets back to growing up and not wanting to be too fancy. Just mm-hmm. learning. Maybe I want it. Actually, I, I want to be too fancy, but learning that that's not what. Um, yeah, just kind of being more aware of it, of that place. Like, oh yeah, I hear, I hear that nature. That's not the truth of it, but that's why it's there. You know. My um, my friend Rick is a he he writes the real deep blues blog spot which is like in the kind of kind of neo blues community in the world is, is, is like a real kind of touchstone for lots of people because he is just devours music and is connected to lots and lots of musicians all over. Um, he wrote the liner notes to Dan Arbach's first band, the barn burners before anyone knew who the black keys were. And he's just always been connected. He wrote about the Alabama shakes six months before any like I, I did an article about him so like I actually found I actually researched and like found out like how soon before any other article was written about the Alabama Shakes did Rick write about him and it was like four months before anyone in the world except for him wrote about him and um, and so he's just one of those guys and it's just really interesting really thoughtful and in that he was talking about like if something doesn't have like a layer of dust on it with some scratches like he's not interested like he's not interested in going to an antique store he's much more interested in going to a thrift store right like he wants to find something um and that's just like for him that's just like kind of like what you're talking about like there's something about that that's not just about personal taste but like this idea of um, of not only how you want to be perceived, but like also just knowing that there's always someone who has less than you and always someone that has more than you. And like, again, coming back to that idea of grace is like that something that I could do in my work would make some kid that walks up to it feel like they're not enough would drive me crazy. You know, like some kid from like wherever they were, whether they were from... Um, a space where they just didn't, you know, didn't have the same kind of background or access to like art history that I've had. And for them to like feel, you know, not connected to that would drive me crazy. And then there's this other spot where I like, I do want to make the inside jokes about, you know, you know, inside the white cube and, um, you know, those kinds of things. And so like figuring out that balance of, it's always been a tricky spot for me, but I, I'm like you, I, I, I think there is something about, um, that idea of fanciness, which I think for me, a, a great pill for me was teaching at Father Ryan for three years and being around um, a lot of affluence because I had a real, I had a real um, prejudice about it, and it was it was great like meeting a bunch of just fantastic kids yes. who were just 
great kids and they didn't they couldn't help it that their mom and their dad were both doctors or their mom and their dad were both lawyers or they were both from you know like a really strong middle class family where there was just has always been enough like and they were just great kids you know and so that was really interesting um for me it's just like that idea but it is funny that 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 idea of fancy right like that that word is for me such a word about like it's such a southern word about about what we talked about that it's like everyone else says pretension but people from the south say fancy you know <laughs> like fancy is yeah. like if you were doing a equivalent like act word I'm thing sure Oh yeah, we love Her Olivia. Fancy yeah. Um, but the opposite is plain, so. Right. But yeah, I mean, Reba McIntyre. Yeah, I've not thought about all that. Um, yeah, that's probably right. I'm getting fancy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. My, my dad's dad was a. My dad grew up in a, a town of basically a logging small town that had a sawmill and. His dad was the pharmacist. He went to school in Memphis. And his mom was a nurse because she went from the Everglades, like going to school, the schoolhouse on a boat, to Memphis to go to nursing school when she was 24 because she heard that they were giving people scholarships to study nursing. So that's where she met my papa. So they then moved to his hometown, Amity, Arkansas. And there, the, the, there were a couple other of professionals but they were the town professionals um kind of the, the way that the family has talked about it so i think my dad gave me the sense of like don't don't you i think it's true like don't just treat everybody the same mm-hmm. like don't um don't act like you're too fancy and don't act like like and also don't be too low to the ground like be proud of who you are but you know, I don't know. I always love that, you know, that idea of Bear Bryant told his players, like, act like you've been there before when you get into the end zone, you know, and <laughs> as, as, and instead of celebrating because he's like, it makes you look silly, it makes you look like you've never ha- gotten there. And I love that idea of, uh, of, uh, I have so, I have so not, not done that for most of my life. Right. Me neither. I, And the other side of that, right, like that people use that for, my friend Craig was really great about it. He was like, the other side of that is like racist, like kind of white supremacy and like white, old white men, like kind of poo-pooing on like young black men who want to celebrate because when they get into the end zone, like in an NFL game and they do a dance because it becomes part of this like joy and like the crowd and the electricity. He's like, he's like, you want to avoid that too, this idea of like, they can't like that there's something about them that isn't that that doesn't have its own value to also just be like i'm here i made it to the end zone so that was that's also yeah. been a, you know it's it's like it's yeah. interesting that and again it's like the figuring out that the time and place like i don't care about the end zone thing when it comes to like whether people celebrate or not in a football game but the act like you've been here before is really important in other spots in your life i think can be a really good like strategy for these moments of like just kind of taking a breath and just like nobody has to know that this is new to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hey, yeah. we're real quick. 
I'm gonna, we're gonna tie this up in the next 10 seconds. We can continue talking, but we've got one hour on the phone. And so we're gonna, we're gonna act, we're gonna, we're gonna just tie it up. Thank you for being here. Um, Thank you.